You're listening to audio from the Branch Church Milledgeville. If you would like to learn more about our church, what we do, or who we are, please visit tbcmilledgeville.com. If you're located in the central Georgia area, please consider joining us for worship at 730 North Wayne Street in Milledgeville, Georgia, on Sundays with fellowship beginning at 10 a.m. and worship kicking off at 1030. Amen. If you guys would turn to John 17 with me. John 17, as we look to close out the high priestly prayer this week. Hopefully, you were here last week, got to hear part one of this impromptu little two-parter here of the high priestly prayer. And in that, got to hear of Christ's consecration, of his making himself sanctified before God for his church, of how he pulls his children, his disciples, out of the world, as he is not of the world, and sets them apart for the glory of God. Not only that, but how he sanctifies them for the whole of their lives. And so in this, in our closing verses this morning, verses 20 through 26, we actually get to hear in summation the working power of the love of Christ. And in that, the practical outworking of a life changed by the gospel. Um, You see it in your bulletin notes here that our lives are changed through our unity with Christ by the power of the gospel. Um, This is the story of every Christian who can call God Father, who knows Christ as Savior, that our lives are changed through our losing them, through our dying to self, being made new in Christ. And so in our verses this morning, we're going to see that continued call for unity amongst the disciples, and not only the apostles that Christ is speaking directly to here, but the disciples forevermore. Um, I love texts like this this morning because when we read, as we do in our opening verse here, verse 20, um, those who will believe is referring to us. It's referring to the New Testament church. And so oftentimes we can read promises of Scripture and, and need to be careful to understand that in the story of David, Goliath, we're not Goliath, we're not David, we're not in that story. And there's things that we can draw from that, right? But in texts like these this morning, we can see that these promises, these words are spoken to directly continuing disciples that the apostles would go on to make all the way up to their martyrdom. Um, Remember that all the disciples would come to die a martyr's death, that they would go on ministering in far off lands making disciples. And so we see here, just to give us some context, that this group Christ is speaking to is telling them in this prayer exactly what he hopes to see happen. And anything that Christ hopes to see happen will what? Will happen. Okay? And so in that, he's praying that disciples would go on and make disciples. Sounds familiar, right? If you've heard Pastor Brian say anything ever. Great commission. Okay? So in that, we see disciples go and make disciples and the church be one in Christ, just as Christ is one with the Father. Okay, and so in all of this, we're going to see functionally how the gospel changes a people of random, diverse peoples into one body and why that is. Um, So if you would join me in prayer toward that end, um, that you would see the beauty of the unity of the Father and the Son um, 
not to backtrack, but this is such a rich theological point this morning that Jesus is indeed one with the Father. You've heard it all throughout John, but this is truly a splitting defining factor of theology between Christianity and many other world religions. If Jesus is not God, then he's just a great teacher. He performed works, but if he's not God, then he's not the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, then what are we doing, right? Paul says as much that our toiling is in vain. And so in that, that's our baseline this morning, that Christ is indeed one with God. They are one. His Spirit makes us one with them. And we see the unfolding here this morning. With me? Okay. Father, thank you so much for the chance to come together under your word. And I pray that we would be exactly that, teachable, that we would be able to be formed according to your hands as they work through your word. I pray now that you would remove all flesh from the equation, whether it be our own pride, our own preferences. I pray that we would understand before the creator of all things, we don't know better, and we simply need to hear from you. We need to apply what we hear into every area of our lives, and not just into next Sunday or MC this week, but into our coming and our going, our sleeping and our waking, everything in this life, I pray that we would be changed by your word. So we praise you that you are with us, you have made us a people, your church, and that you have promised to change us, and I pray that we would be changeable, that in your kindness and your patience toward us, that sanctification as a body would be a worshipful process, and that we would do little to make it painful. So we praise you for your goodness and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. And so I'll read our whole text here this morning, if you would do the same, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you had have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Right off the bat here, we get to see the beauty of the body of Christ. And, and this is something that I fear has kind of been um, robbed a little bit in, in modern culture, that it's painted that this beauty of the body of Christ is that it's made up of so many different kinds of people, right? And, and that it's made up of people of all kinds of backgrounds. Even in this room, if you guys take the opportunity to, uh, or luncheon this afternoon, just hearing one another's stories about where you come from, what you do, even down to what you watch, what you like to eat, partake in, everything, we are all terribly different. 
okay? <laughs> and especially in this body, we always talk. I mean, we really check, I mean, every box, I think, of types of people. And, and it is such a blessing to be brought together and be so different. But the beauty of the body of Christ is not that it's a bunch of different people who are brought together, right? I would argue in scripture, I think would also say, and if we can't tell by the themes of in me, in them, I and you in our text this morning, that the beauty of the church is that it is indeed a group of diversified people, all kinds of backgrounds and everything, not just being brought together, but being made one, being made one. At some point in large evangelicalism, it was kind of lost on us about the beauty of a body of believers. And I think it was through verbiage such as um, my personal relationship with Christ, right? My testimony. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but we need to remember and understand that our relationship with Christ, albeit lived out through personal experience, does not just save us one in ourself right? It saves us to the body. We're brought into this covenant body of members. And that's a beautiful thing, right? And furthermore, in that, our testimony, although it be different in its circumstances, right? I'm sure everybody in this room has different testimonies, maybe same themes, but all of those testify to one thing. What is that one thing? The glory of God, And so the wonder of the gospel and the reason I stress this today and the thing that will make the church stand out like a city on a hill is its unity, is that there are so many different types of people brought together, not just to stay together for a time, but to be made one. If the world could truly see Christ-like love put on display as it's meant to be through the church, just to lay this out for us. It would see a group of people that come from all different types of socioeconomic backgrounds, different preferences, both politically and the like, all coming together and being conformed to one image. And then they could go down the line and talk to one person over here about what their testimony is, about where they came from, talk to another person over here the same, and see that both are being made into one thing. And that's into the image of Christ. That's why I love verses 20 through 22 here as they set the stage for us. I do not ask for these only. Christ saying this here, he's not asking the Father only for the perfection of the disciples and apostles in front of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity at this point, right, is not just a cultural tag we get to wear to be more attractive to a public. It's a necessity according to the gospel. Notice here that the church, the apostles, are not sent out to be lone wolves and change the world. That's not Christ's marching orders here. Instead, what he says is that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is a reflection of the unity of the triune God. And in that, we shine that into the world as a unified people. Now, 
this important distinction here between unity and uniformity. Okay? None of us will ever be exactly the same. We can't be. Just in our genetic makeup, our pre if you are married or hope to be one day, you will find out that even the person that you are closest with sometimes cannot be more different than you. Okay? <laughs> and that's a great thing, by the way. That's not a dunk. That's a wonderful blessing. And it will grow you. Promise. Anyway, in that, we see that as we're brought together, we can be different. And that can be a God-glorifying thing. Take, for example, the immediate disciples and apostles. They did not all go to the one same place to evangelize. It was their different pasts, their different skills, perhaps, that took them to different corners of the world. And in that, they raised up believers all across the world. There are personal preferences in your life that the person sitting next to you may not have. And in that, God gives you an avenue to go and make disciples through something someone else in this church may never do. Is this making sense? So our personal preferences at this point are not exactly what I'm talking about here. As we become one, as we become unified. The goal is not uniformity. If the goal is uniformity, then at some point along the way, we stop looking at Christ and we start looking at this ideal model, right? Whether it be in one another and your pastors, which we cannot fulfill for you. We can imitate Christ as best we can, but we are not the standard. The standard for all of us at any point in time in our life is Christ. Now back to our personal preferences and the beauty of our appetites being changed, right? Once we came to know Christ through the gospel, there were certainly things that we'd like to partake in that I'm sure we no longer partake in or fight not to. There were certain trains of thought that we ascribe to that I'm sure we no longer ascribe to. Right? And so in this, uniformity, hear me, is not the goal. We will not have a church uniform that you will have to show up in on Sundays. We will not have a certain way you have to walk up to the Lord's table. We are all wired, made, created differently. But do not mistake this, that as you are saved, you are saved to a body. And the purpose of that body is to reflect the one who unifies. It's to be made knit together an entire being both in purpose, function, and intent into the image of Christ. And this is the beauty of our text this morning. It's the beauty of the unity between the Father and the Son and the Bridegroom. In verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. We glorify God when we become less like ourselves. To put it bluntly. When we become less like ourselves, we glorify God. And this flies in the face of culture today. You hear cries from every angle of be yourself, be you, live your truth. The church family, there is only one truth. And yes, by all means, enjoy the way God has wired you. But understand the call of the gospel is not to die to self and live like self. It is to die to self and live like Christ. Do not just be yourself. Be holy as you are. 
Don't put on the old cloak of an old sinful man. Live as a righteous people. What this does not mean is you press into some false piety, that you forget who you once were, but you reflect Paul and understanding himself as the chief of sinners and saying that the knowledge of God surpasses the worth of all things and that he would never forget what God brought him from. I would argue that for us as a body, the thing that unifies us above all, whether it be personal experiences, shared experiences, different things that we work through together, although those are unifying factors, what unifies us above all is the grace of God. I know this might sound so rudimentary, but if you actually think about the application of grace, it is the thing that not only unifies the body, but keeps it together. In this body, if you're a member now or hope to be, I will go ahead and tell you, if you have not already experienced it, you will be hurt, let down, or feel wronged by a member of the same body. This, however, is not licensed to think, not home for me, I gotta go. And said, this is exactly what the grace of God covers. That allows us to press on, press in together to see wrongs made right, just as Christ covers any and all sin and making us new. See, this plays into church ecclesiology, or how a church works, the wheels that turn it and make it go round and round, right? Grace implemented looks like believers forgiving other believers. It looks like believers loving the wrongs out of one another. It looks like believers forgiving seven times, 70 times. And it looks like doing it all, not just monthly or weekly, but for however long we get to worship together. This stands out in a world that is so fast-paced and temporary. And this is the beauty of a place like Milledgeville, where you can press in and hold firm and fast and prayerfully one day get to see children from here and their children come and go. And not, not just like come four years and go. I mean, come, live, and die. If you ever hear churches that are established or were established in the 1800s or have been around since the 1920s, prayerfully, if they're still kicking and fighting for the gospel and not just meeting, right? We see a beautiful picture of what this type of unity gives us the grounds to do. And that's to establish a generation of faithfulness. Generational faithfulness. But this cannot happen if we do not understand the power of God's unifying grace. Our binds are not so cheap as to be done away by the sin that Christ paid for on the cross. Now certainly God will lead everyone in here down different paths. There may be those of us who come for four years, graduate, and go serve faithfully, and maybe come back. There may be those who graduate, go, and serve faithfully elsewhere, and never come back. But what is promised is that while we are unified here, we can be unified completely in the mission and purpose of our lives. And while we are scattered abroad throughout the week, we can be unified in knowing that we are marching to the same beat of the same drum for the same purpose. And that's to see each other be made new in Christ, and continue to be sanctified and the world around us to be changed by the gospel. Amen? Amen. That's the purpose of the church. And that's what actually happens when the church presses in. Verses 23 and 24. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." We are not just one in Christ as he gathers us together as his children. We are one with Christ. The end of the Christian life is to be with Christ. With Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm viewing this life through an eternal lens, and I see momentary suffering, and I can 100% of the time look at anything that comes my, our church's way, and see what is the end of this thing. And I follow it through to its logical promised end and see that it's unity with Christ, then we can worship through anything. Anything. Have you ever considered that? The end of your life as a child of God is to be face uncovered before God. Flip with me, if you're a quick flipper, to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I love the verbiage of this verse here and, and just how it describes our end, our end as Christians. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Folks, from one degree of glory to another. Make no mistake about it, while the world is broken and displays its brokenness every day, while the world is hurting and is in need of dire help, we as the body of Christ are going from one degree of glory to another. We're not to walk around with our heads hung and our tails tucked. We are living in our king's reign. Let that sink in. We are living in the reign of Christ the king, as described on his cross, king of the Jews, of Israel, of which we are grafted into. That's our reality. Now make no mistake about it, just as I said, that faces its pings of death, but never the sting. After all, what did Christ overcome on the cross? What victory did he secure? What enemy did he lay underfoot? All that would befall us today. Satan, sin, and its effects. Going from one degree of glory to another as one with Christ. And this, we must also understand that love creates change. Love creates change. Now we see this in our text here that Christ fulfilled the law because of his supreme love for the Father. Now in doing so, he was able to by being the God-man, right? And understanding exactly everything and every why and every reason of his earthly ministry. And all of it, he saw God. He knew God's will and he saw God's will and he loved God. He held everything perfectly. Just as he suffered to the upteenth, everything we suffer, and even more, things that we never will suffer, he he withstood. 
And as he pressed on, so we press on. Understanding that God's love and Christ's love for God created a deep, lasting change. For us, just ask yourself these questions. If, if not, write them down and consider them later. Do you love God? Do you love God? And if so, how has that changed you? What has that changed about you? And not just in the scale of your life, but this past week, how did your love for God change you? What did it change what you did? Uh, How you thought? What you partook in? Friends, we need to be very careful, very careful of a love that costs us nothing. This is not true love. Again, marriage is a wonderful example of this as is sisterhood and brotherhood. I can tell you in that loving brothers, it has cost me pieces of me. Of that, I've had to take up things I don't naturally enjoy just to spend time, like video games. Okay? It's a small example, but even more than that, true brotherhood, true sisterhood, true love over time will cost you your pride, it will cost you your comfort, and it will cost you yourself. Now consider this, what did Christ's love cost him? His position of glory? He abandoned every comfort, and it cost him himself. Our love is not free from mirroring Christ's love. It must cost us something. It has to. Why is this? Not so we can be spiritual masochists or sadists. Not so we can constantly beat ourselves up with a deep theology. But because it cost our Savior his life. And if that's the love that we reflect into our lives where we are now. And to our lives down the road. Shouldn't it cost us something? By God's grace, it may not result in us hanging on a cross, but I can tell you, and Scripture tells you, that it will result in dying to self every day, knowing it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. True love brings about change, and that change results in true unity. We are with Christ because we were given to Christ by God. Again, if you're a quick flipper, jump over to Revelation 21.2. Revelation 21.2. Side note, we will go through Revelation one day. Okay? John, once we finish John, we'll, we'll take a look. Okay? But here we see the call of the new heaven and the new earth. Promises to come. Revelation 21.2 here. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We do not find our way to being one with Christ by happenstance or Christ establishing that we would become one and then playing sort of divine ping pong with us. And what I mean by that is this, Christ did not look down the halls of eternity and see, oh snap, Bailey did this thing, how can I get him back on track? Let me correct him here. That's not how God works. He is not that weak. He established all things before the foundation of the world that would lead 
to him. All things are from him, through him, and to him. And so in that, we are not one with Christ just by accident. There are no sovereign accidents. We are one with Christ because God the Father took a people and said, here, and gave them to Christ. How much confidence should that well up within us? That we weren't just sort of, yeah, you, 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 go ahead. We'll see how you are in 10 years. We'll revisit it. No. Before the foundation of the world, God picked a people and gave them to Christ. Not just as a project, not just as something to keep Christ busy on earth, but as his bride on the final day of atonement. That the the bride described in Revelation is us. We'll be presented as blameless, spotless, holy, through and through. And that process is ongoing now. Now let me ask you, can that happen if you seek to go it by yourself? No. There are thorns in all of us that we can't reach or even see. We need one another. There's a reason Christ is not going one by one with the disciples here. He's speaking to them as a whole because they needed one another. They offset one another's personalities and zealous areas. They completed one another as a team. Not in the romantic sense that we see, oh, you complete me. No, I can look at brothers and sisters in this room who have personality traits, strengths, and characteristics that I do not have that although I can try to have and grow in, because I see your examples, I will never reach like you can. And this is the beauty of the plan of God, that we have people who have skills in here and characteristics in here and attributes that complement one another, and doing that can lead toward a unified body that moves with Christ. Now, as we move on this earth, we must never forget where we are ultimately heading. And this is to heaven. From one degree of glory to another, the ultimate being heaven. Now, let me ask you, what is the joy of heaven? What is the joy of heaven? It is to be with Christ. We must be careful about how we view heaven because chances are it will form how we view our current hope. If we are standing here now in the scope of time and look forward to heaven as the absence of rather than the fulfillment of relationship with Christ, then we are in trouble of our hope currently being circumstantial. And here's what I mean by this. If we look to heaven and see, I cannot wait to not be in pain. I cannot wait to not cry ever again for my emotional fellows and ladies. I cannot wait to not be depressed. I cannot wait to never feel anxious again. I cannot wait, I cannot wait, I cannot wait. The reason that you have those things and will have the fullness of those things is because you will be in the fullness of the presence of God. The reason that you can have those things in shadows now and grow in those day by day all the way through your life is because why? You are in the presence of the holy God. Don't mistake this. Heaven and this earth, rather, is not a waiting room for heaven. Okay? We are with God 
now. What is the Holy Spirit? It is, the by, it is the means by which we are with God and God is with us. This is our unity with the Father, our stamp on our souls. This is why we can do exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Think about practical implication. Why else would God tell us to cast off every anxiety if we were unable to do it? Why would we be told to press on and not be surprised by tribulation if we were unable to do it? Brothers and sisters, just because it is difficult to do does not mean we are unable. Our Lord is never unable to fulfill his promises. Amen? Think about that. Our Lord, what he declares will happen, will happen. And it will be difficult, and we will go through it, whatever it may be, but we are promised to come out on the other side if we hold fast more like Christ. This life, then, is not a waiting room. It is a battleground. And we will carry spiritual scars. And we will lose pieces of ourselves. But in that, we never have a cut and we never have a wound and we never lose something that Christ does not replace with himself. This is what it means to die to self, to live in Christ. Heaven is joyful because of the one who sits on the throne. And the absence of all sadness and pain is only there because of the true light that drives out all darkness. The practical implication of this daily for your life now is to magnify the light and to push out darkness. To look to God, to read of God, to worship God. Not just to sit and think of God or consider God, but to press in and see your anxiety be thrown off. And see depression be something that drives you deeper into God's grace. See suffering as a joy that, treat, that teaches you how to worship. This is the unfolding of unity with Christ. Verses 25 through 26 here. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Church family, Christ has led us, and he will continue to lead. As he is recounting to his disciples here, his apostles, how he has led them, and how he will continue to lead. There is no wonder at this point to them how they will go on discipling. They are being sent the Spirit. This will enable them, encourage them, allow them to endure up to death, after all, it is the glory of Christ, the Redeemer, to dwell with the redeemed. Now please hear me say this, as is often lost in Reformed theology. For no good reason. The doctrines of grace require us to understand that Christ enjoys when we dwell with Him. He wants to be with us. If you ever wonder how badly Christ wants to dwell with you and you with him. Look to the cross. Look to the thieves. Look to who he dined with, who he went to. Look to the crowds he drew away, sent away. Christ desperately wants to be with his bride and not only that, he wants to see his bride endure and not just as a limping lamb, 
but as one who is confident and safe and knows they are protected. So the question for us as we close here and see the end of our high priestly prayer is where does God's love take us? Where does God's love take us? We need to look no further than where it took Christ. It took him to those who were forgotten. It took him to those no one else would go to. To those who were cast off. To those who were perhaps even rightfully cast off. It took him to the outskirts. It took him to the sick. It took him to those who were dead. So where will God's love take you? Where has it taken you? Perhaps it is taking you from a place of addiction, a place of pride, a place of comfort, a place of indulgence, of lust, a place of self-reliance. It has brought you to the foot of the cross for you to look up and behold as a child of God in awe and wonder the one who has saved you. And it does not just stop there. It allows you to look to your left and to your right and to see people you thought would never be saved worshiping with you. How humbling. I'll leave you with this. I had the joy of catching up with someone I never even got to claim friendship with uh, throughout elementary and middle school. And um, we connected through Facebook. Um, we saw Rebinds, he wanted one, and we started talking. And I remember, I remember being young in the faith and seeing teammates and thinking, uh, no way they'd ever be saved, no way. And that leading me to an activity, not going to them. And um, long story short, got to catch up with him, and we were talking and, and just got to hear how God saved him and saved him from a church that was not feeding him, from a school of theology that was misleading him, and here now where he is and, and how he is married and raising a daughter um, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I just got off the call with him and just wept. I was like, I never thought this kid would be saved. And then it made me look at myself and think, what in the world did I ever think was so worth saving in me? Nothing. I gave countless reasons to not be brought into God's grace. And know all too well Paul's call of why me and not my brothers. And and blessed by that in hindsight, but so desperately would want for you guys to be blessed by it in the moment, to be humbled. Count all the lies that you tell yourself and see them as truths. We are a broken people. We do indulge where we should not. We do wonder, we do distrust, we have disbelief. And yet even still, Christ saved us sanctifying us and will present us as perfect on the final day. I pray that this would humble all of us and that we would see the baseline for unity 
is not for us to be more like ourselves. It's to be more like Christ. And this requires a divine grace and humility. And the world will be blessed, and hear me say this, Milledgeville will be blessed by the branch church being one. And that will happen through arguments, through disagreements, through wins and losses, as it already has. How beautiful are the promises of God and the King who fulfills them. Amen. Father, we thank you for the chance to recall your promises and all things that you have given to us and to certainly wonder at times what your will may be, what it is you would hope to see happen, but not for long as we can look to your word and see that it is for your kingdom to be established, it is for your children to dance in your courts as children, it is for believers to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. All in all, it is to be made one in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. I pray that your mercy and your kindness and your patience toward us would be reflected one to another in this body and that we would just be a light on a hill, the salt of the earth, that the love you have given us would be so deeply understood that it would be richly applied and be a sweet aroma to those around us who do not know it. I pray you would encourage us in this hope, that you would make us confident, and that we would be sanctified by it, and others would be saved because of it. Send us, Father, we are here and we are willing, and if we are not, I pray that you would kindly make us so. Send us, save our lost brothers and sisters through us, and that we may go and make much of you. I pray this in Christ's name, according to your will, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.